All right, all right, all right. Well, welcome back to Genuinely Lit and a happy 4th of July. I am sitting here at my favorite brunch spot, Brood, and I am going to get rolling on this third part of this podcast. So I'm going to be roll with you. This is like the first time that I'm genuinely doing this at a restaurant. <laughs> Um, and so I'm probably going to have people coming in and out, um, talking about some fun stuff. So we will see. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I just finished my Sunday ritual with a good hike and I've officially back pursuing my own green lights and anxious to dig in and discuss, um, turning the page, um, so the place that I'm at brewed, this is off of Magnolia Avenue for peeps in Fort Worth. Um, it's just me, the book, this, well, actually it's not the mic because I left my mic at home. <laughs> oh, comedy of errors. Here we go. Um, but that's okay. So I'm, I'm going to make it roll because that's my name of the game is that I make it work. I feel like that should be my, um, theme song or something, but um, my normal bartender, Sammy, is actually on the other side, and he might be popping in to, to comment on some various things. So um, he's the guy that I, I come to see normally. Um, he is great fun, and yeah, it's part of my ritual, and I love it. Um, but I just ordered my beverage. So let me tell you guys about my beverage. Um, so this place has a lot of craft coffees, and one of the craft coffees they have is called a candy bar latte. And I get that candy bar latte with oat milk and I get it with a shot of tequila. Hey, hey, sure do. Get me a big old shot of tequila because <laughs> I'm a Texas girl. Um, but about to move to Colorado, but I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but so we're going to kind of talk about McConaughey's turning the page um, and so when we start part six, it's actually one of the most notable moments in McConaughey's life, um, that actually did not involve a movie. Um, and so interestingly enough, the one moment that probably a lot of people know about McConaughey is bongo playing. <laughs> Naked bongos, um, is where it's at. So... Um, and so like, you know, that, that chapter kind of begins with a celebration. You know, he, he's talking about how he and his brother go out and party and, and UT had beaten the corn huskers. And so he kind of decides to unwind and, and, and literally before you know it, police officers have busted in and wrangled him to the floor to, and started literally going through his stuff. And so, um, you know, like. He, he just literally, you know, he's like, oh, looky what we got here. The roided up cop with a crew cut who looked like a Nebraska corn husker himself said as he read the driver's license he picked up off my coffee table. Then he picked up the bong and looky what we got here, Mr. McConaughey. You are under arrest for disturbing the peace, possession of marijuana and resisting arrest. He proudly stated while squatting atop me, knee in my back. Fuck you, motherfucker. You broke in my house. Fuck yeah, I'm resisted. That's enough. He grunted, then wrangled me to my feet. We're taking you downtown. The other officer, the more civil one of the two, grabbed a blanket off the couch and moved to wrap it around my body. Oh no, I barked. I'm not putting shit on it. My naked ass is proof I was minding my own business. 
<laughs> oh, I just got my shot of tequila. Um, so basically that whole section is sort of him describing like the, the incident of, of where he gets arrested. Um, and you know, and so he kind of says that the problem is, is that in his family that we didn't get in trouble for committing a crime. We got in trouble for getting caught. <laughs> and so it's like this whole, you know, concept of, of outlaw logic, you know, which he's talked about before. And so, I mean, you know, like, I'm going to be real. Like, I feel torn about this because on the one hand, I feel like that this was kind of a missed opportunity to create a dialogue around this issue. Um, because the truth is, in Texas, it is, as Matthew McConaughey describes, an offense to smoke marijuana. Um, but I guess in my mind, outlaw logic isn't just about not getting caught. Um, and, you know, maybe it's different in my mind, and I've sort of branched off from his outlaw logic. But, you know, for me, it's it's also about challenging the logic behind why things are. Um, and so, you know, when you think about why things are, you know, the whole reason we do some of the things in the private place of our home is because various government forms believe it's their right to dictate us doing it or not doing it. Um, and, and, you know, but then it, it, it kind of makes us think, you know, it, it's, isn't it our right as citizens to question those things um, and our government and to challenge those laws with beliefs and with facts? Um, and so, you know, like when we talk about weed, you know, I mean, it's like at the heart of it, you know, you feel that that's kind of where he's going with this is that, you know, he knows from his own experience that weed isn't more harmful than alcohol. And I might ar argue that it's probably less harmful than alcohol <laughs> based on statistics alone. Um, you know, but one thing that, that, you know, lots of weed smokers will tell you is that it's not addictive, which, you know, I believe is categorically untrue. I mean, just based on research and, you know, based on that, I fully know and believe that it can be addictive, but um, I don't believe that it's as, as addictive as it. it can be easily recovered from in terms of, you know, from a physical addictive situation. However, um, you know, addiction is not just physical. It is also mental. And so um, I think that the severity of mental addiction is real, you know, regardless of what the thing is, whether it's marijuana, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, food, that's me. Like, that's something that I struggle with, you know, in terms of an addiction. So that I, you know, literally have to deal with daily. So, um, but overall, I feel like that he kind of gets relative about telling his story, you know, not really pontificating about why weed should be legal. Um, even though you probably get the feeling that that's how he probably really feels. Um, but you know, like, you know, that the purpose of this memoir, you know, isn't, isn't to tell you how to live life. And so that's kind of why, you know, in a way we appreciate it is that he's not really preaching at us and telling us, you know, thou shalt smoke weed forever and ever. And that's the greatest thing that you should do. And this is how you should do it. But he's just saying, you know, this is how I see it. He's not really using it as a, as a means to, you know, as some sort of platform for the, the stuff. He's just, this is how I see it. Um, so, but, you know, like, I, I think, you know, that one of the things that, you know, we, we talk about here and we want to talk about is, you know, it's, it, it creates the conversation and it's like books like this create that conversation. And so, you know, here in Texas, um, you know, 
I, you know, we, we talk about how we, you know, there's lots of people that believe that it should be legalized and, you know, of course there's people that don't and it's, it's obviously the more conservative people that, um, that don't think that it should be legal. So I'm actually going to ask some of these people, Hey guys, I have a question for you guys. So I'm doing the podcast over green lights, the Matthew McConaughey book. You guys heard of that? Hey, hey, nice to see you. Um, and so like one of the chapters he starts off, it's the whole one about like the bongo playing, you know, he gets arrested for playing the bongos after smoking some weed. And so then there's like this whole idea of like, what do you guys think about weed legalization in Texas? It needs to happen. Okay. Why? Because it's legal everywhere else. Why can't we just make it legal here? Okay. It also, we can like help with making money, more money in Texas. Like there's just, there's nothing bad about it. So I don't understand why we can't do it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, cause like he doesn't really use the book to kind of create sort of a, a platform for weed legalization. He doesn't really do that, but I feel like it creates a conversation around it. You know, and because, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, he should be governor. You know, he should do. Have y'all heard that? Like everybody's saying he should be governor. So, but like, I just like the book because he doesn't really, you know, go out of his way to say like, this is how it should be. He just says, this is what I believe and this is how I live. You know, I don't know. It's cool. But it's cool to hear like other people's perspectives. I was just asking them what they thought of legal le- or weed legalization. Yeah. You, you, you on board with that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you on board with that? Yeah. yeah. Who's not? <laughs> Oh yeah, why? What would be? <laughs> okay, okay, that's funny. Okay. Okay. See, like, and that's something that you think about from a racial perspective. Interesting. Okay. So unless we're talking about legalization, but also fairness and yeah, yeah, giving capital to those communities. And so like we were talking, Sammy and I were talking earlier, um, you know, actually before the podcast started and I asked him, you know, why he thought that weed had not been legalized. And, you know, he actually gave me, um, you know, started giving me some really, you know, good information about (laughs) the history of legalization in the country and, and just, some of that background information. And so what was some of that stuff that you were saying about the background of legalization? Well, we can start with like the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. Uh-huh. was passed by, well, promoted by, what is his name? Harry Ansminger. He was mm. like the first guy over the um, narcotics division. Yeah. And you had an influx of Mexican immigrants in the early 1900s. And in order to deport these Mexican immigrants who were fleeing political turmoil in Mexico, our government decided it was necessary one tax the sale of marijuana and through the taxing of that, um, deport a lot of these people who were using marijuana as a way of, of smoking. Yeah. Before Mexican the influx of Mexican population into America, marijuana was just based around fibers and clothing and yeah. rope. You know? uh-huh. But then they brought into the mix the smoking of marijuana and used it for medicinal purposes. Right. So our government outlawed that in order to deport a class of people. 
Yeah. Just pretty much the vestiges of racism. Yeah. <laughs> the laws we have now. Yeah, me, me and Sammy, we, we have conversations about systematic racism, and um, we have some good combos. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for that input. Um, yeah, he's he's Sammy's great. You you got to come see him at Brood. He is. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And him and his wife actually do a book club, and they host it here at Brood. Um, so anybody would want to do that, that'd be cool. Um, and so, so basically from this point, um, you know, it's, you know, obviously when we talk about the weed thing, you know, like just recently in the news, you know, we've got that, the athlete, um, the runner who got popped. And so, you know, it's just all these things that we start to question, you know, it's, it's one of the things that we question. And and I think that gives us the freedom, you know, pun intended, um, here on 4th of July, you know, to question those things as Americans. Um, so, but following sort of his run in with the law, you know, his Hollywood lifestyle, you know, kind of reflected his naked bongo playing and, you know, like he ends up, um, kind of living this bachelor lifestyle at, at the Chateau Marmont in, you know, Hollywood. Um, and it was during that time that he makes the wedding planner and, but it's also during this time. And this is the part of the book that I was really kind of, you know, Intrigued that he spent so much time talking about this character because, you know, as a moviegoer, you know, I'm going to be real. I didn't think too much of this movie. I thought it was kind of lame. But we're talking about Reign of Fire. Um, And so really, you know, I guess if you want to say the top build person of that film was Christian Bale. Um, But, you know, McConaughey was in it. And he spends a good portion talking about this character because I think it, there were things that, that that character taught him. Um, and so that was really interesting. But it, so it's during this time that he actually begins to question not really the existence of God, but essentially the amount of work that is on him to perform the things that he needs to do to get things to happen in his life. And so, um, on page 186, you know, he says, I'd been questioning my own existence and searching for meaning in my own life for as long as I could remember. But for now, the first time, I was, on, well, I was also questioning the existence of God. Well, an existential crisis, I'd call it an existential challenge and one I was up for. So this is where he says, I didn't as much cease believing in God as much as I doubled down on self-reliance and the responsibility of free will. Um, and so, you know... This 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 area is like really meant something to me because like I really I really grasp that because of things that are happening in my own life, um, and so you know it's it's that discipline it's that you know taking charge of what you know you need to do and get things done if you want to do it, and so um, I'm going to talk about that here in a minute for in my own life, but um. So I think, you know, he kind of says that, you know, this film kind of really put him in the gear to sort of get back on the horse in terms of discipline and, you know, to catch some yellow lights, as he said. Um, And so I I think it's true that, you know, he sort of plays his own game against Hollywood, you know, and, and he doesn't, he actually literally says that in the book that, you know, he doesn't play Hollywood's game against themselves. He plays his own game against Hollywood. Um, and, and I think you can see that in his choices. Um, and if you've seen the movie, you know, the, the reign of fire, you, you can very see plainly that he has a bald head and, um, 
And so the producer that was producing the movie was not happy that he shaved his head. And he actually sent him a, a memo basically telling him that he was going to have bad karma because he shaved his head. And so, like, in true Texas fashion, um, the first thought that, that McConaughey thinks is that he needs to give this dude a good ass kicking for telling him that shaving his head was going to bring him bad karma. Um, but this is actually what kind of distinguishes him from anyone else. I, I just think that it's like not only does he not kick the guy's ass, but he decides to show the dude, you know, what an asshole he is for talking the karma thing. And so, you know, it, it kind of like it says, you know, there's this little where he, he buys a new suit and he goes to this party and it, he says, I bought a custom three-piece Gucci suit that matched my eyes. I tanned my ba- pale head poolside for four hours a day for the next five days. And then I greased my now beautifully brown scalp with some oil, not of mink, until it was so shiny that it would have made Dwayne Johnson jealous. Then I went to the party. I didn't see bad karma. I didn't have to. People noticed, especially the ladies. And people noticed them noticing me. The following Monday, my phone rang again. Bad karma calling. It scared me at first, but I've had a change of heart, Matthew. (laughs) I love the shaved head. You look original and so handsome. I love it. I put a penny in the saucer. Green light. And so, you know, like, that's just a pure example of him. Like, he doesn't go out of his way preaching to people. He proves and makes points to people through his actions, which I think is super awesome. Um... So he ends up kind of secluding himself at his brother's ranch to kind of prepare for this film. And you know, the regime and the workout regime that he does is, is on page 192. Um, and so I'm just like, bas- the basic things is take a double shot of tequila every morning at sunrise before I get out of bed. Run five miles across the desert daily barefoot. Keep my heart rate below 60 while standing on the edge of the barn's rooftop overlooking a 40-foot drop onto the concrete below. And run out into the pastures every night at midnight and tackle sleeping cows. (laughs) Um, And then he kind of says, my Dragon Slayer regime failed miserably, but the upside was that I experienced a lot of pain as any good Dragon Slayer would. So again, he's not going to look at it that it didn't work. You know, it did, essentially, just not in the way that he thought that it would. Um, so after this, okay, so this is where, you know, the book kind of takes a turn and he goes into this whole, you know, he has this habit, which is a good habit. I shouldn't say, you know, like as it's, if it's a bad thing, it's not, but he has this thing like where he's constantly, you know, having <laughs> these wet dreams and pursuing them. And so, but they are always these moments in his life that are so profound that, that give him such the oomph that he needs to get back to do what he needs to do to make stuff happen for himself. Um, and so he literally chases down a wet dream, um, by going to Africa and he ends up finding one of his favorite African musicians, Ali Farka Touré. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Um, so, but after finding him, he says that we ate, we played some of his songs and Issa, who is like his little travel guide, translated my passion for his music in the local dialect, Bambara. Later, I asked him, why do you only perform in West Africa and France? Why do you not tour in other countries, including America? He solemnly answers, because there would, because there I would be dried shit. Neither me nor my scent would stick with you. Here, I am wet shit. Both me and my scent stick with you. So with that, Ali encourages him, you know, to go to 
Bandigara, Bandiagara, a place that he would remember, a place to, that he would be wet shit, essentially. And so, like, he's just constantly using the momentum of all these different people and all these different situations to propel him forward into these different adventures of his life, where he legitimately learns things about life. And so, on his way there, he and his troop, they actually stop in Timbuktu. Yeah, it's a real town. And they actually notice a prostitute and that two men begin discussing the appropriateness of her actions. Um, and so one of the men suggests that it was shameful and the other one was kind of arguing that she shouldn't be judged. You know, so there's kind of like these two men arguing on both sides of whether or not this woman, what, what her sitch is. And so, you know, McConaughey kind of steps in and he kind of agrees that the woman, you know, should find more respectable work. And then Ollie, the dude that he was agreeing with, you know, he literally says to him, it's not about right or wrong. It is, do you understand? And not only was that a profound moment in McConaughey's life, because he literally says that, but it was kind of a profound one in mine, because when I look at that and I see, like, he literally went to Africa to get this information. He goes to Africa to, to find this out. And, and it's like, it's that stuff that you see that you feel like, you know, that's what traveling does for you. Like it puts you in experiences that allow you to experience other people's perspectives so that you can potentially then take that on for yourself because that's a really good perspective to have and to own, you know, to be able to, um, you know, walk into situations with some of these things that he's learned in other places is truly living. And, um, so, all right. So he, so the, so basically in this society, in this area of the globe, when, when two men disagree, the intention isn't to win an argument. It's not to be right. It's to be understood. And so that was, was largely profound for him. And I think super profound for me and something we all can definitely benefit from here. <laughs> um, and so, okay. So when he gets to the, so he goes to the, the, the village in the Bandiagara and he arrives, you know, with some anonymity. Cause he doesn't want, he doesn't, he doesn't know like who knows him and who doesn't. So he basically tells everybody his name is David and that he's a writer and he is a boxer. And so, you know, the, the, the word gets out that, that, that this guy is a quote-unquote boxer. And so naturally having a name attached to something like that is going to intrigue people. And so straight out of a scene from Ace Ventura when nature calls, <laughs> he gets challenged by like this biggest, baddest wrestler in the village. And, um, you know, kind of with his heart racing, he hears the words that the guy said to him in the last, like the, the musician guy. And he's, it says, take the challenge or you will forever regret not knowing. Leave your scent. So leave your scent. And so he takes the challenge and there are two rounds and there's no real winner. And then in fact, the next day, he actually asks his friend Issa, I have to talk to you about yesterday's wrestling match, he says. And, you know, he says, how did I do? I think I held my own. And, you know, Issa chuckles to himself and he says, no, no, no. You did very well. Everybody think, everybody think Michael going to going to have strong white man named David on his back in no more than ten seconds. Really, I asked. Yes, really. Michael, not only champion of this village, Michael champion of this village and three villages back. Ha! So I won. That's why the village all chanted my name afterward. And then this is what he says. Issa says, "It is not about win or lose. It is about 
Do you accept the challenge? Wow. So this is a lot about life, right? You know, did you step up? Did you try? Did you do things that were going to put you in a place of success? And so I'm going to be real. I used to spend a lot of time in my life um, deciding certain paths and hemming and hawing and like, like all these different things and being negative about every single one of them. And I spent a lot of time focused on what could go wrong instead of what could go right. And when I visited Colorado last year, you know, during the summer, you know, if you listen to the last podcast, you know that I spent the last year and a half really striving for wellness in every area of my life, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And so when I drove into Colorado for the first time, I felt this overwhelming sense of peace, like that this is where I was supposed to be. And so after visiting two other times, you know, and I was sold, I mean, this is where I needed to change my frequency. You know, it's where I needed to, to just be and live in a different space than I had always been in and to turn the page, to step up and do something different. And, but wanting to move and make it happen are always two for things, right? I mean, the latter part is often where I struggled. And, and so, you know, with resources and confidence, and I never felt like I was the one thing, you know, going to be the one to make things happen for myself. And, but until I started making wellness a priority and striving for wellness in all the areas mentioned, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And it was through that dance that I began to recognize that these areas of my life needed attention. And, you know, last fall I attended a virtual event for women hosted by Cami Gildner, um, who is an amazing female entrepreneur badass in Colorado. Um, and her mission is basically to help women raise up their businesses. Um, super awesome woman. So, but one of the speakers uh, told the audience how she would kind of speak things into existence through getting excited and, and like really like whooping it up and, and, um, and she would say like, I'm so excited. I get to do this or whatever it was. And so, you know, I, I wanted to try that out for myself and there seemed to be something to the whole, like putting things up to God with positivity and, and that I really, I don't know, had really leaned on. I mean, I had before, but just not fully and consistently. And so it just seemed like a good place to start. So I just began to scream like, I'm moving to Colorado. Woo, I can't wait. I'm moving. I'm moving to Colorado. And I just kept doing that. I just kept doing it over and over again. And um, I also went into that self-reliance mode with a dash of trust in Jesus, you know, just like McConaughey. And just, you know, I believed that, you know, I fully believe that we have to work like it depends on us, but rely like it depends on God. And that's what you have to do. And you have to put yourself in situations to catch those lights. Um, Okay, so upon his return from Africa, you know, he kind of made some more of those romantic comedies. But he did it with gratitude. But he admits that he no longer felt challenged by filming those kind of movies. Um, And he kind of says that he felt more like an entertainer rather than an actor. Um, and so, and he, you know, you can clearly see that he's getting way more out of his travels than he is really with his career. So he actually even considers changing careers at one point and he becomes really restless with that decision. And, um, so that kind of pushes him to change his frequency again. And so he gives up his bachelor pad Chateau Marmont, uh, pad and, and he gets a house big enough for a family. And so you know, like he literally starts making, putting things in place to have a family, even though he didn't even have one yet. 
Um, and so that's kind of right where the arrow's ready to draw that target, which is the next chapter. And so to pull to pull in that anything of what it is, um, you have to have that distinct place to land. And so, um, you know, I mean, say what you will about wet dreams, but clearly they have some power in a man's life because <laughs> he has another one. And this time it's about a family and he visualizes a marriage and kids and being a father and, and the dream that he had always actually really had that he talked about at the beginning of the book. And so this is actually where he also meets Camilla. Um, love her. She is so awesome. If you don't follow her on Instagram, you should. Um, she's got lots of great, great wellness things, um, wellness tips, but love, love, love her relationship with Mama Mac. Um, those two are so fun. They should have their own sitcom. (laughs) Um, anyway, but, but he meets Camilla at a bar. And the biggest thing I take away from this that I love about Camilla is just like, I loved, you know, how he talked about her confidence and class, you know, meaning like she doesn't bone him on the first date and she actually lays out her needs and expectations pretty clearly for him. And, and draws him to her and vice versa. And so it's this very like give and take relationship. And so it just seems so effortless, but obviously t- it taking work. And so he literally says that he stopped looking for the girl, but he obviously finds her. Um, and so, you know, as they kind of go through the relationship, you know, they start making little commitments to each other. And as they, you know, as he begins to fall in love with her and, you know, like they commit to never allowing distance, um, you know, with movie sets and things like that to keep them apart. So, you know, even as they become a family that she will always, and the kids will always go with them and, or with him. And, um, and so there is the story about how they tell, um, mama Mac that she, she, so she ends up getting pregnant and, um, there is the little story about how they tell mama Mac that she's pregnant and, like in true Texas mom conservative fashion, she's more worried about, you know, like how it's going to look at the fact that she's pregnant before they're married. And, um, and so that was kind of cute, but, um, you know, but you know, kind of during this time, you know, it's like his personal life is, is going well. Like, you know, he's met this, this amazing woman and he's had a, he's starting to have a kids and, you know, but he's also got these multiple ventures that, that, you know, all these different things, um, you know, aside from, you know, the acting and his family and the foundation, he also started a production company and a music label. And so it was during that time where he started to really realize that he wasn't able to give, you know, as much as he could to all of these ventures. And so he decides to kind of close some of them. And so he ends up closing the production company and the, the music label so that now he can only focus on family acting and foundation. And those are the three things that he focuses on. Um, and so, you know, there, his son, when his son's born, there is a family tragedy that brings them back to Austin. And so it's during this, when they're back in Austin for this family tragedy, which he doesn't discuss or talk about, which I kind of admire, you know, I mean, and, and for that matter, like he doesn't really, you know, nothing is salacious in this book. You know, he doesn't really, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Christian Bale is really the top billed person on that film, Reign of Fire. He doesn't mention Christian Bale. And I probably, you know, I don't want to assume, but I could probably take a gander and guess why. Because <laughs> not a lot of people seem to think um, too highly of, of Christian Bale and, and the way that he behaves and acts on a set. So, I think about that and I think about the way McConaughey is and I potentially wonder if, if, you know, if something, and that's why he doesn't mention anything about Christian Bale because Christian Bale is a good actor, 
So you would think like he, you know, may have said something about what he may have learned or from the experience, but not saying anything kind of, I don't know. But point is, is that he's not going to. And he even says that in, um, I even think he said that in the, um, in the, the book, the book thing that, that I went to that he did. Um, I keep saying, I said thing, but I can't, my brain, my brain is going blank right now. Um, the, just the book tour, the tour that he did online for green lights. Um, he talks about that. So, but what I love, um, is, you know, he, he really, he gets relative like he talks about and he narrows down his stuff to the, the core things of what he knows he's going to, can be successful at. Um, and so, but ultimately when his son is born and they go back for this tragedy, his wife, or not his wife, I guess she wasn't his wife at that point, but um, Camilla asks him, you, do you want to move back to Texas? And, or you want to move back here, don't you? And he's like, yep. And she's like, you son of a bitch, or something like that. And so, but, <laughs> so obviously they move back and, you know, but even with the move to Austin to better change his soul, the roles that he was offering, you know, were being offered weren't challenging. And so, you know, that's where he kind of, you know, he's kind of, circling himself to put himself in a place and in a position to draw the target. And so that's, this is all the stuff that he had to do in order to draw the target. And we know like, you know, we want to equate this man's career with the Oscar, you know, like he's, he's, he's a Hollywood actor, you know, and that's typically what, how we want to relate, you know, somebody's Hollywood career is the status of the fact that, you know, did they win an Academy Award? Did they have success? La la la. And so, like, obviously he does, and we know that. You know, we know going into these next chapters and these final two, which I will do by next week. But, you know, we know going in these, into these last two chapters that, you know, that, that he ended up getting an Academy Award for Dallas Buyers Club. And so you can kind of already see how he is starting to set himself up for that success. And so sometimes you have to let go of things in order to gain things. And that's kind of where we're going to close out the podcast next week with this book. Um, And we're going to totes get onto that. And um, ultimately, I just feel like I've learned a lot from this book so far. And I'm just so grateful for this experience, even though I kind of had to do it in weird little pieces. But um, we still got two more parts to go. And Brood is getting a little (laughs) brewy. So I'm going to order some grub because I'm super hungry. Um, after doing my ritual and I'm probably not going to be good. I'm going to be honest. So, um, but I hope everybody has a wonderful fourth and I will catch you back here next time. Bye.